Welcome to the Last We Fake Fiction Podcast. Each season, the podcast features an original West Coast novel in 12 episodes, along with selected short fictions from writers both new and established whose works take place at the shifting borders of the American dream. I'm Alan Rifkin, fiction writer, former contributing editor to Details and LA Weekly, and a lecturer in the creative writing department at California State University, Long Beach. This week, the podcast is joined by the widely anthologized flash fiction author and editor Meg Pokris, who will be reading and discussing a Los Angeles trilogy in Flash titled Her Own Music, as well as a standalone story, Cash Register Tape, also set in L.A. Welcome, Meg. Before the readers get to hear your work, I'm going to kind of drag you into telling us how you do it a little bit. I've never felt more compelled to ask somebody that. Uh, you slip stream so effortlessly from the ordinary to the surprising in a single sentence, um, or from the daydream to the night dream, as I've heard some people put it. And I just want to know what that thing is. Is it elusive? Is it the thing you chase? Uh, it feels so organic um, on the page. Okay. Um, that's a really great question, Alan. And I think for me, I never saw myself as a storyteller. I was a poet before I wrote fiction, and um, I never thought I had stories in me. So for me, it was a matter of tricking the stories out, which sounds a bit odd, but that's just honest. And so... These stories that I read on your show were some of my earliest stories, and they were completely tricked out of me. Um, my favorite way to trick stories out or to sort of coax, maybe trick's not a good word, to coax them out, was to give myself between five to ten random words every day. So I'd wake up in the morning, I'd assign myself five to ten random words, I'd set a timer for I think it was 20 minutes back then. And I'd write without any idea of what was going to come out. And surprisingly, stuff would happen. But it all happened in the process of moving my fingers and not thinking about it. Just letting my brain make connections and associations with the words. And I suppose there's always some emotional component that might've already been in my head before I started writing that day. Um, memories of my past, especially with these stories of living in Los Angeles in the 1980s, 90s. Um, and they informed what I did with the words. So I, that day I would want to write about a certain thing and have a vague idea about it. But it was always making connections with often very strange words for me that got those stories to come out. I'm kind of a shy person and it, it takes a while for me to express myself. Dare I ask what the five words were that prompted these stories you're going to share? Honestly, I can't remember what the words were, but they were, I know one of the words was pool and one of the words was ha ha. <laughs> But what did I miss? Where where do you get the words? Do you let just let the words 
um, fall from the ceiling? Book open next to me and it would be someone else's writing or it would be my own writing or it would just be, you know, the newspaper. And I'd grab, my eyes would grab or will still, I still do use the same method to write my stories, will grab words. And then I just jot them down. And no matter how much I hate the words, I have to use them. When did you sort of find that Flash was your turf as a writer? And did you have false starts as a different kind of writer before? So, yes, um, I started out writing poetry. It was quite narrative poetry, narrative poetry. And editors didn't seem to like it very much. They rejected me constantly. I, I, I hardly had anything published. I wrote my narrative poetry for many years. Um, I did work with some really wonderful mentors, and I think the practice of, of writing poetry was very good for me as a flash writer. But again, I didn't see myself as I did not see myself as a storyteller. So I saw myself as a poet. And it was very disturbing to me that the poems weren't getting published. But it wasn't until I contracted a very rare condition in my foot my right foot in which I couldn't walk for four years and I was in a high level of pain on a daily basis that I thought I could take a risk and try something I'd always wanted to try. Um, at the same time, I was reading the very first online flash fiction in magazines. They were sort of popping up here and there. There weren't many magazines in the world that published online flash. There was Smoke Long and LMA, Story Glossia, um, there was like a handful of them, but, I, and I read, I loved, I loved what I was reading. I was also reading flash fiction writers like Amy Hempel and Lydia Davis and Diane Williams. So I was fascinated with the form and I thought, you know, I guess my fear of failure just basically evaporated during that time of extreme pain and dysfunction where, you know, nothing, nothing was felt good in my body. And so I think I just felt freed up to try something different. And I didn't any longer care about failing. So the idea of failing at something new went completely away. So it was a wonderful, exciting period where I took a risk. I tried my poetry writing exercises, but in, instead of writing poetry, I started writing little stories. Sometimes I would take the poems apart and fill in connective tissue. So take the line breaks out and, and fill in the little places that were missing. And I started sending them out to magazines and they were snapped up. And I was shocked. Um, I had a story taken at Smoke Long Quarterly, which was absolutely, you know, the best flash magazine in the world. And, and not long after that, they asked me to come aboard as an editor, a staff editor, which just changed my entire life, really. So I, and I think the, the success of this helped me to recover from the condition, which I did fully recover from. Thank you, Meg. That's really quite a story. Um, I will have more questions. We'll discuss a little bit after people hear you read. Uh, but here now is Meg Pokras reading first a short story called Cash Register Tape, followed by a trilogy, a story in three parts called Her Own Music. Cash Register Tape. Her job was driving to gas stations in the San Fernando Valley, selling specialty cash register tape with ad space on the back. She sold it to the station owners and mini-mart managers. Ads like, 
free wash with any fill, printed on the back of cash register tape, the stuff people usually threw out. She knew how to simulate enthusiasm because she was an actress. She had been studying acting since age 10. Conservatory trained, she knew how to dive into a role. Practicing her smile in the mirror, she threw the cash register tape in loops around her own shoulders like a lasso. The trick was to position the tape around a decision-maker's shoulders, getting him touching it, eager for what came next. Back at her office, she smoothed her hair. It felt both slick and hard. She was close to winning the monthly sales award, and if she won it, she planned on buying a new outfit, setting up another interview with an agent. One of the owners was Sammy. He had two beagles and a wife who was living somewhere else. Sammy had the worst breath she'd ever sampled, and it made her wonder if he were gravely ill. He took her out to an IMAX, ordered an extra-large popcorn to share. Watching the movie, with his hand planted on her knee, she listened to the sound of him eating unbuttered popcorn, how each piece squeaked in his teeth. She believed she'd come to forgive this sound. Later, driving up along Mulholland Drive, he stopped on the side of the road early in the morning and fell asleep. She didn't bother to wake him. To him, she was nothing more than a cash register tape girl. She thought about Nina, a role she'd played in Chekhov's The Seagull. The world of Russia, a hundred years ago. The life of a young actress, losing her mind. Her Own Music After her marriage blew up, Jane's therapist suggested that she join an I Am class so she could hang out with other shells of their former selves. She attended her first I Am workshop, which was really an unorganized support group with dancing afterward. Jane saw that for most of these people, deep into middle age, Music had become a functionality balm, a way to get through the next hour. That and pumping Visine into their bloodshot, sleepless eyes. One member started with the Visine, and it began a domino effect, nearly choreographed. Fiercely addicted to their iPods, the I Am members shivered or growled when she attempted to converse. Worse, the men who tried to talk to her after the get-togethers had mange or fleas. They scratched at themselves nervously and stuttered. When Jane dragged herself home alone, she felt desperate for a smoke, had nothing left. If she were a kid, she would smoke oregano and pretend it was grass and it would feel wonderful. Instead, she turned on her own music, Jane asked Tarzan what he was wearing. He said, nothing. She said that she was wearing nothing as well, and that her name was Jane. Good, he said. Let's think about something now, she said. She told him to imagine that they were both in a hot tub, and it was very comfortable and warm. Jane could hear a dog barking through the phone, and clearly the man named Tarzan was chewing an apple or a sandwich. There was the sound of a toilet flushing. 
Oh, so your cock is just floating like a pontoon boat near me, she said. And then, well, she waited for him to chime in, to say something about Jane's wet tits gleaming under the full rising moon or something. So it's just floating and I'm getting very excited and all, Jane said. She could no longer hear chewing and the dog had stopped barking. She didn't hear anyone breathing, and for a moment, she worried that he might have choked to death. You okay? she asked. Yeah, why? Tarzan said. Okay. And so, good, Jane said. She was not naked, but she didn't need to tell him that she was really wearing comfy new pajamas. She needed to cut the tag off the collar, could feel just a tiny scratchy feeling at the back of her neck, like a flea. Jane hired a man from Craigslist named Paul to clean the pool area and remove the bees from the water. She liked Paul's ass, the way his jeans would bunch from all he was bringing. She really needed to commit to eating red tuna sushi for the next three weeks, lunch and dinner. There were ways to fill days that had nothing to do with fatty food. There was also a bronze-faced man named Ha Ha. Sounded like a joke, but it wasn't. The man said he'd had a terrible afternoon, and she had given him the opportunity to accompany her for a seaweed salad. She told him it was on her, and sipping Dragonwell tea with him, she asked about the name Ha Ha. He said he'd always been a comedian. Paul was only good at scooping bees out of a pool, and she couldn't stop wanting to eat seaweed with the olive-skinned funny man. At night, after their smoke, nothing would stop Paha's voice, all sucky, burrowing in and out of her fleshy dream and her unstained kimono. In Jane's dream, she was serving tea to young men with shiny hair. In the real world, Haha's voice lived off the blood he sucked from her shins, calves, and her bottom. A tick can draw blood from a person in an ape suit. So hungry, so smart. Haha's life kept growing. He had hundreds of friends just a click away. He told Jane he was popular because he said things of importance to people. That's how you collect friends, he said, real followers. When Jane closed her eyes, telephones appeared. They were the only way to connect. She would dial random numbers and say, Can you hear me? Do you know who I am? Once, a seven bloomed on her fingers, and she dialed sevens, got a busy signal. Fives felt hungry. Maybe fives ate children, so she avoided them. Eights were delightful. Though untrustworthy, they used Listerine. Every number had a little problem, and she didn't have anyone but ha-ha, the size of a dot. Even in her dream, his part of the story needed work, felt false, unfinished. She blamed herself lived to please. She used his deodorant, his lotions. He said he was falling for her every time they fucked. He said over and over, Jane is sexy, but she's a real mess. There was one exit, one way to make him happy. A year and one day later, Jane met Bill. He was sunning in the yard next door, must have moved into the rental. 
She had discovered nettle plants growing and needed to destroy them before things went further. Jane had developed a little problem with anything new, in general, since Haha vanished. There's always a loyalty factor, they say, like thread hanging from your skirt or pocket lint. Where does it come from? Jane tried not to drag Haha's scent behind her everywhere she walked, but somehow she had started tripping. Once or twice a day, she would trip on invisible rocks or ruts in the sidewalk, undetectable upon later inspection. She would go back like a detective and stare at the place where she'd tripped to figure out how it could have happened again. Jane's words felt shy. She wanted to say hello across the fence casually. The neighbor looked sad, sunbathing and reading, as though he were nothing better than an apparition, as if he didn't deserve to be spoken to. Jane understood. This man had large dark glasses and a bald head. Jane walked over to the fence, cleared her throat, and said, Hello there. He had his own music. In fact, she thought she saw the lonely white wires dripping from his ears. Welcome back, Meg. Hi. I'm drawn particularly to this cash register tape story um, for several reasons. First of all, the side gig, and in this case, kind of an ultimate side hustle, strikes me as kind of an L.A. peculiarity. Um, Also, just the way that the main character becomes sort of this mythological being with cash register tape as as her sort of lasso. She reminds me of a constellation or something. Um, and, And then with... So much of what strikes me as 70s or 80s Los Angeles kind of menacing the borders of the single woman condition. Um, How did this story take shape? And to what extent does L.A. kind of speak through the margins of the story? Well, the the story is basically a memoir piece. I was a out of work struggling actress in Los Angeles in the mid eighties. And I got that job. <laughs> it was called Aquarius corporation was the name of the company. And I found that I was frighteningly good at the job. Um, and then the it's, yeah, I think the story I'm hoping the story kind of captured the feeling of desperation that an out-of-work actress has at some point in her career, especially, maybe especially back then, but I'm I'm guessing it's probably just the same now. Um, It's just such a competitive and ridiculous profession. And, you know, I've trained for it my whole life. I started acting at age eight and was conservatory trained and all of that. And then I found myself selling cash register tape and not knowing if that would ever get any better. And so there was a lot, I think, caught up in that moment in my life. And I hope I was able to sort of bring that into the feeling of the story without saying it directly. 
since I'm always drawn to stories about low points, I wonder if there's anything you miss about that state of being. I miss being young. I miss feeling that the whole world could change. Mm. Aside from that, I don't think I miss anything. <laughs> In both these works, I think you, cop- you, you captured something, whether intentionally or not, about L.A. as sort of a geographic aphrodisiac, could I say? I mean, there's just kind of like a libidinous slash nihilistic um, atmosphere around these stories. Um, Was that a connection that you formed with Los Angeles in any way? Or am I reading too much in? And I'm glad to take the blame on this one. I don't know if it was Los Angeles so much as a time in my life that I tapped into with those stories, but it could be the sensuality of how it felt to live in Southern California, which I spent most of my early years in. I grew up in Santa Barbara. And when I wrote these stories, I had long been away from it. And there's a sensuality about living in such a beautiful part of the world and about, well, well, I guess loss, loss figures into it. When, when someone's experiencing loss, they crave the release of the senses. And I do feel that her own music has that sort of involvement of a wish to escape sadness and the loss of divorce through sex or sensuality or feeling at one with your body again. And I think, I hope that explains it a bit. Jane has this, you know, almost pre-Tinder kind of connection uh, with Tarzan. <laughs> Who, uh, whose name came first in that uh, development? Did, did you know who Jane was and then decide to name the guy Tarzan, or was he already there? Yes, I had the character's name, um, Jane. And when I wrote that section of the piece and I didn't pre-plan it and I didn't think through it, I just, the, the phone sex scene sort of poured out of me during that writing session. And I just realized that it would be perfect to give him the name Tarzan because it, you know, it matched Jane. As somebody who has never attempted flash fiction, but manages to get my mind blown, by it. These are the kinds of sentences or paragraphs that I'm so taken with and envy. This is from a, a story that I saw on, on a Facebook news feed recently titled, A Person Can Laugh. There's this paragraph, I let him rub his hand on top of my knee. I didn't even blink, just sat there like an empty driveway. He was in charge and I had $100 left. My car needed everything. I have heard stories and probably written stories that would take 10 to 12 pages to capture with less astonishment what was captured in four sentences there. Is that 
the magic of flash fiction? Is that kind of the um, the goal for you? And uh, and are we heading in that direction? Do you think as a uh, reading public? I think it's um it's just the way my brain works. I, I see the world in bursts. Um, I it's just it's sort of I I do think we're heading that way. I I think as you can see when you look at online magazines and print magazines these days, the form seems to have taken over a bit. I think um, the idea that people can enjoy these pieces in a few minutes between doctor's appointments or while they're stuck, you know, between meetings or it allows you to get your dose of, uh, of literary enjoyment in a, in a very short window, very short period of time. And it's all, I mean, it does something similar to poetry in that way, I believe, but, um, yeah. And I, I do believe that with my writing and it's always been this way, my goal is to not talk directly about emotion. So to not bring it up at all or, or what, you know, what's really going on, but just to focus on something different, but to let, to allow the emotional content to be there and to be felt. And that seems to be sort of, if there's a magic trick at all, and when I'm successful, I think, I think that's what, what I, what I do quite unconsciously. Meg, thank you so much for being on the program. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for having me on the program, Alan. I've been enjoying the program so much, and it was an absolute honor to be asked to be on today. Really, thank you. Meg Pokris is the author of eight flash fiction collections and two flash novellas, and is the two-time winner of San Francisco's Blue Light Book Award. Her work has appeared in over 1,000 literary journals and has been anthologized in three Norton anthologies of the flash fiction form, Flash Fiction International, New Micro, Exceptionally Short Fiction, and the forthcoming Flash Fiction America. Her work was recently selected for the Best Small Fictions 2022, and she is the founding editor of Best Microfiction. She recently moved to Inverness, Scotland. Intro music is from the song Slow, performed by Sally Dworsky, written by Sally Dworsky and Chris Hickey, available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. Podcast art by Ryan Longnecker. Special thanks to Ben Rifkin and Chip Rice. Thank you for streaming this edition of The Last We Fake. <laughs>